The Bob Murphy Show, episode 106. There's a tidal wave coming. What you gonna do? Get ready for another episode of The Bob Murphy Show. The podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. It's your source for commentary and interviews, conducted by a Christian and economist. Now here's your host, Bob Murphy. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of The Bob Murphy Show. This one, I am going to be spelling out the provocative claim that ID, which is short for the Intelligent Design Movement, ID is going to be the public choice of the natural sciences. So that's my provocative claim for this episode. Let me mention at the outset that if you're watching, or sorry, if you're listening to this at a computer, you might want to switch over to the YouTube version of this episode. All right. So normally, thus far, I've only been doing capturing the video for the interviews with people and posting that to the YouTube channel. But on this particular episode, there are a few points where I'm going to show something on the screen. And actually, in a bit, I'm going to show a little uh, snippet from another YouTube video. And so clearly, if you're able to, you want to switch to the uh, YouTube version. of this. So go to bobmurphyshow.com slash 106. And the top link there will be the YouTube version of this discussion. But having said all that, if you're listening to this in the gym or in your car or something, it's not the end of the world if you don't, if you just do the audio, you're not going to miss out on that much. I'll, I'll keep you folks in mind too. Okay. So very quickly, let me, well, let me first of all say what prompted me to go down this line in my own thoughts and then realize, well, I got to do an episode on this is I have forthcoming an interview with Winston Ewart, who is someone who has published, you know, he, he just got his PhD recently in I think software engineering or some field like that. Um, but he had been publishing, co-authoring articles with some of the big guns in the ID movement, whom I had recognized from my earlier dabbling in this stuff uh, in the mid-2000s when I was a professor at Hillsdale College. In my spare time, I was reading up on this, you know, the intelligent design movement to see what that was all about. And so I recognized these names like William Dembski in particular. So in any event, an episode 111, which of course hasn't dropped yet, if you're hearing this current episode 106, uh, soon after it's been released. But I interview Winston about uh, some of his published articles on this stuff. And so what he ended up doing was he takes concepts from computer science, like standard tools that you would use in computer science and applies it to biology. So loosely speaking, instead of looking at DNA, they'll, you know, he'll put it this way, using tools that normally would be deployed to look at computer code and sections of the code and looking at as modules and things like that. And he, and he does it a different way, applying that to a database full of genetic sequences for various types of species. All right. So that's, I'll, I'll get to in a minute exactly what, what pops out of that analysis, but that's the kind of thing he was working on. So let me first though, just briefly review what public choice is. And, and so you'll understand my analogy or me saying, I think ID is going to become the public choice of the natural sciences. So the public choice movement and economics 
uh, has to do with applying standard economic tools to the political arena. So it's called public choice to distinguish it from private choice, right? So the idea is that, oh, thus far, economists have deployed their tools, like their model of consumer behavior or firm behavior to the private setting where there's private choices being made. But then there's also this whole scope of what's called public choice, where society has to come together and make some decisions to choose things. And so, hey, let's use the economist toolkit in this arena as well. So I'm not going to here try to summarize the main insights of public choice theory, but it certainly rips away the romantic veneer that's normally placed in the political process, right? So the, a standard economist who, believe it or not, actually has a leftist bias, I would say, not in, in terms of the broad social sciences, but I would say in terms of, you know, most, well, <laughs> most economists are the left of me, but that's really not saying too much. In any event, the average professional economist is all about saying all the reasons for why markets can't produce good outcomes, right? And certainly just because a business had a campaign, like we're going to be good for the environment, no self-respecting economists would say, oh, well, because they labeled their campaign with that title, we don't need to investigate any further to maybe wonder about their actual motivations or to look at the results of their policy. The fact that they named it that, I mean, that's pretty much proof that it's a good thing. And anyone who opposes that business's campaign to be good for the environment must hate the planet, right? Nobody would talk like that, right? Of course, people would be skeptical of the announced motivations of business people and they would assume actually they're trying to maximize profits and so on, okay? Or at least that's a very good benchmark starting point. And yet, for some reason, with the political process, because something's labeled the Americans with Disabilities Act or the Environmental Protection Agency, it all of a sudden, it's assumed it must be doing what it sets out to. Or a politician launches a war on poverty. Wow, it's because he must really want to help poor people. Really? And we, we don't need to track the measurements too much. And the very idea of looking and being skeptical about the outcomes is evidence that you probably don't like poor people. Okay, so the public choice movement really just took the standard tools of economics and applied them in the political arena. And as you can imagine, it didn't look so good for the political arena when all was said and done. So what I think it's fair to say, though, that largely happened is it's not that the public choice school captured the hearts and imagination and journal pages of economics journals that had existed beforehand, before the public choice movement came on the scene. No, mainstream economists still kind of do their thing, still having stuff. Like when I went to NYU, the standard foil against the competitive decentralized outcome was the social planner's outcome. That's literally the term they used. By the way, in an earlier episode, I was reminiscing on my time at NYU, and I think I was calling it the central planner's outcome. They didn't call it the center. They call it the social planner's outcome, I'm pretty sure. All right, or just the planner's outcome. And that was going to show you like you know, the set of all Pareto optimal outcomes or something would be what the planner would choose from among. Whereas it was an open question. Could markets actually hit the central plan or sorry, the social planners outcome? Hmm. I don't know because they've got these negative externalities and da -da -da, right. So there's all these different things that would hamper markets and their ability to match what the social planner would do, right? That was the way we were taught things. Nobody ever stopped to say, 
well, gee, what's the actual mechanism by which government officials are going to yield this outcome? Let's study that. It, no. Okay. But the public choice movement kept growing because it was obviously so compelling, right? Who could possibly deny that these economic tools work so well in other areas when it apply, at least be consistent in other words. If you're going to analyze, you know, have a model with the Federal Reserve setting policy and then business people maximizing profits or whatever, at least say, okay, well, what are, what are the people running the Fed maximizing? Why are we so sure that the people running the Fed, their subjective personal utility is the same thing as what they tell the world that they're doing? That, oh yeah, really when the Fed official goes to sleep at night, he's just burning with this trade-off between unemployment and price inflation. That's really what motivates him as a human being. Sure. Okay. So they were getting published in their own journal, right? They started their own journal and just more and more people started adhering to it. And of course, the obvious criticism coming from the orthodox economists would be, oh yeah, people going to public, anyone who's interested in public choice is a free marketeer for ideological reasons. It's not that they're following wherever the evidence leads them. This is all a smokescreen. It's not rigorous. Public choice just publishes a bunch of journals for people who hate the government. And you know, they're defending the rich class. Right? So I'm exaggerating, but that's kind of, how things shook out there. And so I'm saying you're going to see something like that, my prediction is, when it comes with the intelligent design field or movement, whatever you want to, what term you want to use, with respect to the natural sciences. It's just going to keep, what the ID people are doing is so obvious and it's so clear that the baseline result they're going to get is going to look bad for neo-Darwinism that it's going to keep gaining adherence. Right now, it's still weird and out there, and, and so it's kind of being ignored. But the more and more people who actually look at it are going to say, oh, this is completely straightforward. Who could possibly deny the legitimacy, at least of the spirit of what they're doing? Maybe particular applications aren't very rigorous or something, but the idea of what they're doing here is obviously sound. Just like, you know, you might look at some journals in the field of public choice scholarship that you could say, oh, yeah, they didn't control for all these other possible influences in their regression or something. But who could possibly object to the idea that if you're going to apply certain standards to business people and consumers, that you shouldn't consistently apply those to government officials too, if they're all in your same model. Okay. So, oh, and to continue the analogy, I think what's going to happen is the ID movement will just get bigger and bigger with its own outlets, you know, its own journals, its own conferences and whatever. And it's not that the official, you know, biology and chemistry journals are going to start absorbing those insights. They're going to resist it and just ignore them and say, no, that's not even, it's not science. That's, that's a bunch of ideology. You know, the only people who believe in ID are Christians or maybe some other faiths who already believe in God for theological reasons. And they're just pretending, or this is all just a big show that's driving this stuff. This isn't science, right? So that's what they'll say. And they'll say that probably indefinitely. All right, so that's my prediction as to how this thing's going to unfold. So now let me just speak a little bit about, you know, why am I so confident that the ID movement will gain strength over time? And it, again, it was, what was, took me down this path was my interview with Winston. So what the ID movement, so intelligent design, what that is doing, it's actually not, as you might have heard, it's not denying evolution. If what you mean by evolution is, for example, 
the claim that, let's call it the theory of common descent, right? That if you think all life forms on earth can trace back, if you went back up through their lineage, it would all land on a, the same first organism on earth. The first thing that distinguished life from non-life. And then that thing kept multiplying and then, you know, various mutations would hit and then there'd be different lineages and so on. And it would just branch out, branch out, branch out for the tree of life. You could believe in intelligent design and endorse that history of how life propagated on planet Earth. In fact, Michael Behe, who is one of the leading pioneers in the ID movement, he was the one who came up with the notion of irreducible complexity and had a bunch of stuff focusing on the bacterial flagellum where he was saying, look at this thing. That's like an outboard motor. This isn't something that could have arisen step by step with each mutation conferring uh, additional reproductive fitness. Well, the thing either you have all the components and it's working and it's an outboard motor or you don't. If you only had four fifths of that thing in the cell, it would be terrible. You know, it'd be a waste. Okay, so that's, whether you think that's a good argument or not, I'm saying that's the guy I'm talking about. It, the last I checked, he actually endorses the theory of common descent. So right, when biologists are pointing to all the evidence showing there's a nested hierarchy in the tree of life and blah, 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 that doesn't threaten him at all. That's not his point, right? So if you think what the ID people are saying is that the Genesis account is literally true and that every species was invented de novo, some of them believe that, but they don't all. What they're saying with the intelligent design movement is that you cannot use the neo-Darwinian mechanism to generate what we see in biological forms on Earth today. Specifically, the idea that it's random mutation operated upon by natural selection and that produces everything. They're saying that is a, a weak hypothesis, that, that there's not enough there to explain what we see. All right, now, let me, let me try to do this fairly succinctly that before we had the Darwinian mechanism, it was understandable. I think even many modern biologists who are agnostic or atheists could agree. It would be understandable that people would look at you know, modern life forms and sophisticated creatures and say, wow, there must be a creator because look at how complex all this stuff. I mean, look at the human eye or you look at, you know, these creatures, we all have our, our immune system. And like, if you've, you know, when a, when a woman gets pregnant, all the changes in her body and everything, the stuff we're still learning about, you know, with, with breastfeeding and how if the baby's sick, the mother's body knows somehow and then produces more antibodies to help. I mean, it's, it's incredible how complex and apparently finely tuned and designed modern organisms are. And so if you just were to say, oh yeah, it was just because there are mutations, and that, you know, there was a freak set of mutations and that's what produced um, all these modern organs. That would be absurd, right? If you calculated out all the different, the, the space of possible, you know, genomes or something and came up with any kind of back of the envelope calculation as to say, you know, what, how could mutations work? What are the chances you could go from non-life to stuff like this? Obviously, it would be so astronomical, it wouldn't even be worth calculating. That'd be crazy that kind of an explanation. But now with the Darwinian mechanism, modern biologists think, oh no, no, we're not saying that that's, or if you try to make it sound like it's just all blind chance 
and one in a bajillion, jillion, 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 jillion chance of this outcome. No, you're you're being intellectually dishonest or ignorant is what they would say. You say because there's this background of the environment that could, that has you know a, let's call it a fitness landscape if you want to do it in functional terms, and um, you know so back in the day the primordial soup, who knows what there's amino acids or something in the pot and lightning hits and da, 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 right. Obviously, I'm I'm just being glib here, but whatever the story is, is the how life first arose from non-life in a purely mechanical explanation that doesn't involve any intelligence. Then they'd say, okay, and then because of the environment, now certain random mutation hits. In the vast majority of cases, it's going to be disadvantageous, but once in a while, a, a mutation will confer an advantage, and then that will, you know, allow that line to have more reproductive success. It'll pass on the copies of those genes more often than the one that didn't have the beneficial mutation. And so this is how over time you can explain beneficial changes accumulate. And that's how we end up with the human eye or, you know, echolocation in bats and blah, 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 blah. Okay. So what's ended up happening though is you've just shifted the, the, the explanation off of the biological structures, you know, in cells to the environment, right? So if you agree that the, the just chance of going right from raw building blocks with mutations or yeah, with just random mutations directly to the outcome, that that would be a huge leap. That would be implausible. That'd be crazy as an explanation. And if you think though, that you've somehow solved the mystery by saying, oh no, it's because the environment then the question is, all right, why is the environment such that it yields this outcome? Why should the environment have this structure? And I grant you, that sounds like it's just navel gazing and, oh, your lack of imagination is no strike against my theory. But hang on. I agree if we had no understanding or no theory of where the environment came from and what should guide its structure that maybe biologists could comfortably just say, look, at that's not our area. The environment is what, it's it, what it is. And then we as biologists are going to say cells that emerged 2 billion years ago out in the pond because of lightning strike or whatever, then step by step, we don't need to invoke any intelligence and we don't need to invoke anything that's too implausible. Yeah, there's certain things that we don't know exactly, but we've, we've solved enough of these cases to see how something that looks irreducibly complex actually could be broken down into step-by-step beneficial changes that accumulate over time. All right. And they're just remaining agnostic. Well, I don't know where the environment came from or why it's like that, but you know, that's not my field. I'm doing biology. I study life. Okay. But other scientists do try to explain where everything came from, namely physicists or cosmologists. Okay. And they say, ultimately it came from the big bang. And I think most natural scientists think eventually humans will discover a theory of everything, a TOE, theory of everything, that ultimately the laws of physics are going to be reduced to some simple set of rules that explains everything from quantum mechanics all the way up to general relativity operating, you know, across the span of the known universe or observable universe. And it's going to handle everything even, you know, and where those two things come together this is in the Big Bang. All right, so we don't have a, you know, we have different branches of physics right now that deal with certain subsets 
of the physical world, the material world, whatever you want to call it. And they're not compatible. They kind of break down at the Big Bang. It's my understanding is a loose way of looking at it. All right, but eventually, I think most natural scientists think humans will discover the ultimate laws of nature. And I think most of them believe they're going to be pretty simple. And that when all the matter and energy was concentrated in a single point, let's say, and then the Big Bang happens and then it unfolds, starts cooling off, blah, blah, blah. That's the starting point. And so my question is, whatever the theory of everything ends up being, you know, whatever the ultimate laws of physics are, do you think they're going to be more complicated than, let's say, Hamlet? Or do you think they're actually going to be pretty simple? Like just a few basic principles of, you know, constituent building blocks of matter, if you will. You know, whether they call them quarks or whatnot or something more fundamental to build up quarks, who knows? But don't you kind of think, wouldn't it be more elegant? Wouldn't that be satisfying? Isn't that kind of what you're hoping for if you follow natural science? That there's going to be this underlying theory that just shows, no, the real laws of physics, what the rules that govern the behavior of nature, by which we mean like the physical material world, that it's going to be something pretty simple and elegant. And so then if you're starting from that, how in the world are you going to start with that system and those, you know, list of very simple rules or laws of motion or, you know, the evolution of the system from time T1 to T2, how are you going to start with that and then end up with creatures who have brains and nervous systems and can write Hamlet? That's the challenge. And so what is happening with, for example, Winston Ewart is, and other intelligent design theorists is they're taking pretty basic um, tools from other disciplines like computer science where you can quantify in information. You know, they're trying to come up with ways of quantifying information, right? Like looking at a hard disk, there's a difference between it being empty and having a bunch of information on it. And that's not just some arbitrary philosophical thing like, well, what does that mean? No, there's a very rigorous sense in which a hard drive that's full of data has more information embedded in it than an empty hard drive. And maybe we haven't found the best way of describing that or quantifying it, but the point is that's a real thing that's useful in another area, right? So it's not that these tools were all just invented to make ID look like it was rigorous and objective, as opposed to just, you know, some new flavor of trying to preach Christianity on people. And so I'm saying, how could it, whatever the tools are, how could it possibly be the case that you, you train the tool on the Big Bang, you know, that initial starting condition where everything reduced down to a point and a few elementary laws of matter and energy and how they interact and evolve and, you know, what do we mean by time? And as time starts to pass, here's how the system unfolds. How are you going to start from that and end up with the human eye and the human nervous system and everything else? And by the way, it's not just biology that's finely tuned. There's all sorts of things about the universe that make it look like even the fundamental laws of physics were calibrated. You know, the dials were turned on the charge on an electron and the gravitational constant and all these other things to make life as we know it possible. The fact that Earth has a moon, that's very important. If the moon didn't exist, we wouldn't be here probably, right? Because the moon was like a shield. You know, that's why it's so pockmarked. It's like this big shield guarding Earth from a bunch of incoming strikes. 
All right, so it's the more scientists study, the more precarious our existence is and the more amazing and miraculous it is. Like, wow, how are we even here? This is amazing. It's almost like the whole thing was designed to give rise to us and other creatures. All right, so I'm saying whatever objective tools that are being deployed in these other arenas you're going to come up with, it can't possibly be that you're going to look at the Big Bang and then say, oh, yeah, that it's, it's understandable why that would generate what we end up seeing, as opposed to a lifeless universe that just has clumps, you know, of matter. I mean, you could have stars, I suppose. You know, that maybe that's not so hard to imagine. But why you would have all the things necessary to yield life is actually, you, you'd have to say, okay, there's this, 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 and then a miracle occurs, and then this, this, and this. If that's all you had to plug in. Now, there's three different types of solutions. Well, let me let me back up. Let me just give you a little bit more flavor of what Winston did in one of the papers where he co-authored with these other guys. So they came up with uh, this term was called algorithmic specified complexity. So a little background. What William Dembski had done is he came up with this idea of specified complexity. So he was trying to say, look, there, there's things we can look at in everyday life where we know there's design. Right? You look at uh, Mount Rushmore, you know that was designed. There's no way that just the wind and erosion and the rivers and how they might have flown over the mountaintop thousands of years ago could have. No, you look at Mount Rushmore, you're absolutely certain at least one intelligence was involved with producing that structure. No doubt about it. And so what Dembski asked was, what exactly are we doing? How do we quantify that? Like what what procedure are we using where in everyday life we can look at things and know there's design involved and that to try to explain that thing just by reference to mindless mechanical forces would be crazy and we'd all admit that so he was trying to just generalize and say okay what is it that we're doing how do we know that in certain cases where we're so sure there's a designer and typically the designer would be a human being or you know a beaver or something if you're looking at a dam and and then he was just saying okay now we get this framework and then he was going to turn and deploy it on biological forms and say, see, we're just being consistent. And so that specific process he came up with or, or technique was called specified complexity, that it had to be something that was improbable, but mere improbability wasn't enough. It also had to be something that adhered to this independent pattern. Okay, so in this paper, and again, in bobmurphyshow.com slash 111 is where you see my interview with Winston Ewart, who was a co-author on this paper, so when that drops, obviously you can go there for the full story. Here, I'm just going to give in the layman summary. Um, they just came up with a way to operationalize that and they were deploying it in certain settings just to sort of put the model through its paces or the, or the algorithm. So like they applied it to a deck of cards. Like let's say you're playing five card poker with somebody and um, the person's... So here, I'm taking their analogy or their example and added my own flavor to it, but I think that Winston's fine with this. Um, you know, the other person, he's shuffling or whatever, maybe even cuts. He deals you five cards, himself five cards. Let's assume that they don't, you don't draw after that. And you're betting, you got a decent hand, you're betting, you got two pair, you're betting, whatever he's betting. Boom, and he lays down, he has a royal flush. What are you going to think? You're going to be sure the guy cheated. What are the chances with a freshly shuffled deck, he's going to deal himself a royal flush? And so now let's ask ourselves though, well, wait a minute, what specifically is it? And you could say, 
you might be tempted to say, oh, it's because the chance of you pulling a royal flush, you know, there's four such hands out of what are the total number of possible hands you could have dealt yourself. And you see it's astronomically small. But the problem with that is there's no matter what hand he dealt himself, that specific hand, there was only, you know, a one in all possible hands chance of that specific hand happening. So if you don't, if you frame your objection the wrong way, it's going to be silly, right? Because there's a sense in which every hand that's played, the chance of that hand coming out is astronomically small. But yet, it's not that any given hand he dealt himself, you'd accuse him of cheating. It's the fact that it was an improbable hand and it was, you know, very advantageous to him. So it adhered to this independent uh, pattern that we had defined, you know, be, besides just the actual mechanics of shuffling cards and and handing out cards. All right. So in, in, the, in their, in their paper that they show how their technique evaluates, gives a score to an algorithmic specified complexity score to the various poker hands and the Royal flush gets a really, you know, off the charts reading where just some random hand that isn't even one pair doesn't get a good score, even though both such hands are in a sense equally improbable. Okay, so that's the way, you know, they come up with a rigorous way of doing that, a non-question-begging way of doing that. And then, effectively, then they look at proteins, folded proteins. And it's, you know, the given the way proteins can be, the, the chance of it being constructed in such a way that it could be folded, which is necessary for life, as we know it, is astronomically small, right? If you were just randomly dealing proteins off the deck, the way of it coming out in that configuration is shockingly small. And so in a sense, it's like when they take that meter by which if somebody just off the fresh deck dealt themselves a royal flush, you'd say, wait a minute, that looks suspicious because there's a lot of algorithmic specified complexity here. You start using that meter and looking at biology and you're seeing royal flushes all over the place in nature. All right. Again, these are my words. This isn't necessarily the way that the authors of the paper would describe it, the results to the layperson, but it's my attempt to. Okay. So again, you can go in and quibble with it or whatever, but my point is the more people that start trying to do things like that, and in Winston's own work where he just is the sole author, he takes techniques that are common in software development and then uses them to look at biological classifications and to show that no, you know, his, his system looks more rigorous or is a better fit to the data than the standard Darwinian approach. I'm saying these types of techniques, they're just going to keep piling up. And ultimately, like I'm saying, it's a fool's errand to try to just say, no, 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 all this apparent order and design and nature, now there's nothing to see here. It's all just, there's nothing special. Don't be awed by it. No, it's just standard stuff because there's random mutations operating by natural. That you're just pushing the problem back one step. Why should the environment or the fitness landscape be in such an incredibly exquisite pattern such that random mutations operating by natural selection yield these outcomes? Maybe to go back to the poker analogy, it would be like, you know, someone at the casino, they're, they're using the shuffling machine and then shh, they put it through and then they deal you five cards and so, or, you know, back and forth, they deal with five cards and then they turn over the Royal flush. You're going to think there's cheating involved. And if they're like, oh, no, no, look at it. No, it's all the shuffling machine. I didn't do it. 
Well, you're going to think, okay, well, the shuffling machine then is designed to give the dealer a royal flush, right? That's not going to solve the problem. You're going, oh, okay, it wasn't your hands that arranged the cards. Your brain wasn't directly involved. And so therefore, you know, you're going to say, well, where'd the shuffling machine come from? How come it's in the configuration such that it randomly gave you a royal flush, right? So that, that's the idea. And again, I'm saying back when you could just be agnostic about where the environment came from, I could understandably see how biologists would say, no, in the purview of our field, this is the kind of stuff we talk about. We take the environment as given. That's not something for biologists to discuss. And Okay, but natural scientists as a class, you can't possibly just sit back there and say, no, there's nothing to see. There's nothing to explain. Don't listen to these Christians who are trying to confuse you with all of their incredulity. No, that's amazing. Why would a simple set of rules of the laws of nature, starting with a point that has all the mass and energy in it, why would that yield all this stuff? Where did, where did the detail come from? Where did the information come from? Right? Put it to you that way. Like, let's say they come up, computer scientists come up with a way, maybe they do have a way, they probably do, of quantifying the amount of information that's contained in your hard drive. And you, you check, you know, you run it. You've got a certain amount in there at 11 a.m. You go to lunch, you come back at 1 p.m. And all of a sudden your hard drive has tripled the amount of information however you want to quantify that. Would you just say, oh, it's just because of dust in the air must have been arranged in such a way that, no, you'd have to say something put it in there. Where did it come from? It can't just be from the environment because that's, well, why does the environment have so much information all of a sudden embedded in it? Right? That's, that's kind of the spirit of what I'm talking about here. So again, on the one hand, it's very straightforward, just like the public choice revolutions, very straightforward. There's not, you know, you can see a lot of sophisticated mainstream economists. Well, this is stupid, you know. Okay, you can say it's simplistic, but then once you go this route, the conclusion is kind of unavoidable. All right. So, I think there's three main ways that the intellectual person can handle this. That once you realize, yeah, it really isn't a good explanation to just say, oh yeah, the laws of physics contained all the detail built into them when they would presumably were guessing they're going to be pretty elegant and austere. So the idea that this simple set of rules could yield everything that we see, that's kind of a silly explanation or that can't be the full thing. So I think there's three types of solutions to this problem. So one is you could say we're living in a simulation and that's why things ended up the way they did because there's actually intelligent simulators, people that or not people, whatever you want to call it, intelligences or a singular an intelligence that design this. And there's a sense in which this isn't the full reality right here. We're just inside a subset of broader reality. And to us, why do we exist? And where did this come from? And why are the rules in such a way? And why was the initial conditions so apparently perfectly picked that then operated on by these simple and elegant rules yielded all this stuff? Oh, it's because this whole thing was designed by an intelligence or a plural intelligences. So you could think it's the matrix. You could, of course, if you're religious and think God created everything, then, you know, this could fall into that. You could say in a sense, you might not use the word simulation, but it's the same idea that this is just temporary. And once we get to the afterlife, we'll see full blown reality and all of its glory you could say that. All right. So that's one way of dealing with this. Another way is the so-called many worlds interpretation to say, oh yeah, every possible universe exists and only in 
a vanishingly small number of them does life emerge. And then even a smaller subset does consciousness emerge for there to be organisms looking around saying, wow, why are we here? How did this happen? And so, yeah, you know, if there's infinitely many universes, that's eventually going to happen or that will happen. Maybe eventually it doesn't make sense. And then we shouldn't be surprised and looking around and why can we see it? Because there's like a survivorship bias in all of the 99.999% of possible universes where there's no life forms, there's nobody there pontificating. How did we get here, man? This is so deep and cosmic. Okay, so that's one possible solution. But I just want to mention, it, it amazes me how so many hard-boiled fans of physics and who dismiss the you know superstition of those Bible thumpers so readily when they are presented with a, a decent challenge to their worldview, so readily just jump to the idea that, oh, there's an infinite number of universes. I mean, talk about multiplying entities. Talk about in, invoking things that are non-falsifiable, right? I mean, you could just as well say there's a green demon in the corner and he's controlling everything, right? How are you going to know there's infinite universes if, depending on the construct, by definition, we can't get into the other one because we're in our own universe with its own laws. All right, so that's, but that is one possible explanation. And then finally, something that I've seen is people could appeal to math itself, right? So they could, so just like the biologist kind of punted and kicked the design and the structure and like where this detail and information come from in bio, biological structures and they pushed it into the environment, you know, the raw physical landscape and such. And now I'm showing it can't stop there because the laws of physics, the Big Bang, blah, 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 is pretty simple. There's not too much information that seems to be embedded in that where, or at least without being very arbitrary, um, where the physicist could punt and kick it is, is push it into mathematics itself. And in fact, Steve Landsberg in his, one of his recent books, I think it's called The Big Questions, goes down that path. Right, so I'm not going to do justice to justice to it here, but it's basically like, oh, well, once you study the the very nature of mathematics itself, it has to be the case that the Big Bang just shoots out of that. Okay, and so I could see physicists punting and saying, well, yeah, I agree if all we had were the laws of physics, but you know where the complexity comes from. It comes from the, the nature of like the logical, the structure of logic and mathematics and set theory itself these sort of abstract things that gives rise to the laws of physics. Given the way math is, mathematical objects and such, what we have been calling the laws of physics and how nature behaves was an inevitable implication or corollary of that. The universe as we see it is a theorem contained in the body of mathematics. And so, all right, so I could see it going there. And I'm happy to go there too. And by the way, if you think that that's not going to work, you're like, well, what do you mean? Math is just pretty clunky, mechanical. No, no, no. Mathematics, when you, you know, broadly construed, is a beautiful tapestry. It's not like a clunky machine. It's, so in, in case you haven't seen some of this stuff uh, here, so on the screen, I'll put up a, uh, this equation. So Gene Callahan, on his blog one time, posted that and said, the shortest proof for the existence of God or something like that. And the, the reason is this equation, so by the way, I'm, I'm bluffing in a, in a sense here. Like I don't know enough math 
to fully understand even what this equation is saying. But I know enough to say that these, this was a shocking thing. Like no mathematician would have thought this was going to be true until it was demonstrated, right? Because it's, it's combining constants and principles from different areas of math. And so a priori, there was no reason to suspect that there would be an equation that involved all these different things, all right? And so, you know, what, why should math be like this? And some people see the hand of God here. Like this, is, this isn't a coincidence. This is an amazing miracle that that's, that equation is true, all right? You don't like that one? How about fractals? So here, uh, let me play a little clip here. This is the, the Mandelbrot set after Benoit Mandelbrot, he discovered this thing. And notice what I said there, he discovered it. I didn't say he invented it. Saying he discovered it because there's this idea that mathematical objects are out there waiting to be discovered by our minds. And so there, it's a, an iterative equation that shows you step-by-step step how to see if something is in the Mandelbrot set or not. And so what they do is, to illustrate this graphically, now with computers, you can look at the what's called the complex plane, meaning like it involves imaginary numbers, like the square root of negative one. And if it's in the Mandelbrot set, they color it black. And then depending on how rapidly like it diverges, and so you can tell it's not in the set, you, you assign a different color to it. And so then by doing that procedure, they can generate these pictures. All right, and I'm going to just show you what it looks like in this, this video that I grabbed just to show the Mandelbrot set, what it means to start mapping it and doing like a visual exploration of its terrain, you'll see that this guy gets theological on it. And that wasn't, I wasn't looking for that. This was literally the first video I grabbed that looked like a good explainer. And this narrator, this guy, as he's explaining it, you'll, you'll see. So we'll play the clip of this. Let's try the equation with the number negative one. Z sub one equals zero squared minus one. Z sub two equals negative one squared minus one. Z sub three equals zero squared minus one. Z sub four equals negative one squared minus... Hey, wait a minute, we're going in a loop. That means negative one is a part of the Mandelbrot set. We'll color that point black. Now, what if we did this with every point in the complex plane, color coding each point based on how fast the number grows? If the number goes in a loop, we color it black. Doing that, we get this shape. Crazy! The edges are kind of rough, though. Let's zoom in and see what this thing really looks like. Wow! Look at that structure! Check it out. We zoom in here and find some five-fold symmetry. And next to it, seven-fold symmetry. Then nine-fold symmetry, then 11, then 13. And if we go way far down, each arm curves in on itself, making an incredible intricate structure. Within the Mandelbrot set, we can find a near-perfect copy of the entire thing. And look, here's another, but it's a little crooked. No one designed this mathematical creature. The order, structure, and beauty we find is simply embedded in reality. In this image, I see God. Okay. So, you see how that works. Now, again, 
that that's fascinating, right? It looks like you're exploring some new galaxy in a spaceship, right? And you have to keep reminding yourself, this is just math. This isn't like a science fiction story that Mandelbrot made up. He came up with this very simple rule by which you could determine whether a point in the complex plane is in the Mandelbrot set or not. And then you end up with that, whatever, adventure. And so now I want to say, suppose people are zooming in. And again, philosophically, what do you do with that? And I can understand how people who have resisted the design inference in all these other arenas, like when biology, and then if you push it into the physical world, and now we pushed it into mathematics where, wow, mathematics, it almost looks like some brilliant artist with a keen mind <laughs> designed math, doesn't it? I mean, this is, and he's like, oh, come on, that's gobbledygook. No, math is math. Give me a break. Okay. Uh, what if people are zooming in on the Mandelbrot set, you know, to get more and more uh, computations per second, and then somewhere someone finds it, they zoom in, and it just says love, like in English. Like you can see it spells, it clearly spells out the word love. And imagine looking around, and then it's like in all different, Lang human languages. Like it's just embedded in the structure of math that that's there waiting to be discovered by us. Again, I'm just making that, but would that make you like fall out of your chair and be terrified? It should. But if you do with just as mad as a coincidence, I mean, I'm, I'm just trying to get you to see like what evidence could possibly get you to admit there's a ghost in the machine, right? This is not just all blind mechanical forces. There is an intelligence involved and what we see around us, I would say it's a holy ghost. And that is very comforting. But if you're just going to be analytical about it, I, I could see why you'd say, well, we don't know much about its nature or its intentions. But clearly, evidence of design is all over the place. And that's what I'm saying now with the ID movement. They're coming up with ways to quantify. And as we get faster computers, it's easier to actually calculate and look at some of this stuff. And I'm saying as that progresses and gets more rigorous, it's hopeless for those who are going to try to deny the legitimacy of that enterprise. Well, I guess that wraps up my case for why I think the intelligent design movement will end up being the public choice of the natural sciences. For links on all this stuff, go to bobmurphyshow.com slash 106. Now that I've wrapped up my discussion of the intelligent design movement, let me mention my new challenge to you folks. What I'm going to call the five flip challenge. So here's the idea. As you know, I don't want to move to regular commercials. I think that's just going to change the nature of the show. And that's not the vision I have for it. There's thousands of you downloading these episodes. And if just a fraction of you contributed $12 a month, that would really open things up. Right. And so it seems like what's going on here is we've got a mismatch. And so I just want to suggest the following. I think probably a lot of you are believing that, eh, yeah, if, let's say one out of 32 listeners paid a dollar an episode. That seems like a pretty low threshold, right? And that that's kind of, you know, that in order for people to support things that kind of have to have voluntary contributions to, to do it, that that's, that's a reasonable threshold. If one out of 32 people who listen to the thing all the time just gave a dollar an episode, right? Because I realize the, the problem is it's a pain to go through and you got to set the thing up or whatever. It's, eh. And so it shouldn't have to be that everybody has to go through the motions of doing all that because it's a lot of fixed costs, wasting your time and whatnot. 
But on the other hand, if nobody donated anything, then the show wouldn't exist, at least in its current form, right? So for those of you who listen all the time and you're just like, yeah, it must be that enough people are doing it. Let me just say, do you agree if one out of 32 people contribute a dollar an episode, that's not unreasonable to think that kind of level of support would be necessary to keep this thing going, right? Okay. So I'm going to challenge you then, if you've just said that, go ahead and do it formally. And there's a way you can do it. Take out a quarter, flip it five times in a row. If it comes up heads all five times, then you, my friend, have been chosen. You're a person who should now log on, go to bobmurphyshow.com slash contribute, and you should sign up for $12 a month. And you can be somebody who's going to give a dollar an episode if I move to three per week. That's how that works out, $12 a month, right? If you say, I'm going to do the five flip challenge, you flip the coin. If you see a tail, you can stop. The only way you're on the hook in terms of your own internal ethical system is if five heads in a row come up. And then you say, okay, I said to myself, I was going to go ahead and take Bob's little gambit here. And uh, five heads in a row came up. So I'm one of the one out of 32 people that now is going to go ahead and contribute. Okay, so that's all I'm asking. I'm not asking you to contribute. I'm asking you to do my five flip challenge. Say to yourself, if I flip this coin five times and get five heads in a row, then I'm going to give Bob $12 a month and I'm going to go through the pain of getting out my credit card and figuring out how to do this thing. And I got to set this. So that's going to take me a good 10 minutes to do. All right. So the five flip challenge. In case it takes off, it's conceivable economists would study this and say, wow, this was an interesting way to solve some of the issues. You can, you can do it as much as you want to. Like if you think one out of 32 people is asking too much, okay, just say, if I flip this thing, eight heads in a row, do whatever. But I'm just saying, make it real. Actually say to yourself, and last but not least, if you really want to make it rigorous, set a, set a time limit. Like say, for the next year of my listening. And then if it comes up five in a row, whoop, now you got to donate for a year. But then next year you get to flip again and maybe you'll be off the hook. Probably will be, won't you? There's a 31 out of 32 probability that you will be off the hook. Or you can say, I'm going to make it lifetime as long as I'm listening. You can do it once. But if it comes up five heads, oop, that means now, as long as you're a faithful listener, you should keep that donation in force. Okay? So just a little fun way to make it a bit more rigorous. That if you're kind of thinking, yeah, I know some fraction of the people have to support it, but I'm not going to deal with it right now. Just go ahead and flip it. And then you can say, I did my duty. The five flip challenge. Thanks, everybody. Whether or not you do the five flip challenge, you're always welcome to tune in. And I'll catch you all next time. You've just experienced another episode of The Bob Murphy Show, the podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, visit bobmurphyshow.com.